me ask you a question. Would you be surprised if we were sitting together having lunch and I reached over, removed my arm, <laughs> tightened two screws in my shoulder, and then reattached my arm, <laughs> revealing suddenly and surprisingly that I was, in fact, an android? No, it would not. Would you be it surprised would... if you were having lunch with Michael Gunger, I mean Vishnu Das, and he took off a mask revealing a set of tentacles and a floating orb above his head, <laughs> revealing that he was, in fact, extraterrestrial in origin. You asked my wife that question. I did. My wife and my daughter. And both of them said, no, they would not be surprised. Um, and this, this train of thought became a little bit of a, a thing with our other podcast that we have for our patrons, those of you that give on Patreon. Um, to the show and make the show happen. We've had a, a bonus contact, uh, bonus podcast that we've been doing every other week, and it became this kind of thing: the alien and the robot. And then recently, we decided to just go with it. Stop fighting destiny, <laughs> <laughs> and that's now the name of that podcast, which is a weekly program. Now, every week, we put out a new episode of the Alien and the Robot, wherein the two of us explore some theme generally understood by humans. <laughs> Our first episode was on sports, which was fantastic. And uh, we thought we'd give you a special peek into that show today. Well, and you'll hear in a moment what it's about. So uh, this was a special one where we got, actually got to have Hillary and William in with us. Normally the, the conversation is based on just Mike and I um, talking about stuff, but sometimes we have guests. And since we had all four hosts of the Liturgist podcast in the room, we thought this would be a good one to share on the main feed as well. If you like it, go to theliturgists.com, click on the support button. I think join us. Join us. It's the only like button button on the <laughs> site, really. It's got a big box around it in the menu. And if you want to hear more of us, because you know we, we don't we don't give you weekly podcasts on the main podcast feed here, because we just don't have that much to give you. <laughs> um, but we're a little less scrupulous on the alien, the robot. We kind of just go where it goes. And if you get really freaked out or stressed out by this episode, which you may, I did. Uh, we can also help you with that because Hillary McBride. <laughs> made a course on managing stress and anxiety. <laughs> Look at you, advertising guru. <laughs> so you'll listen to this episode, you get freaked out, you don't know what to do, so just go ahead and go to findingcalmworkshop.com where the one and only Hillary McBride offers her insight as a practicing psychotherapist and researcher on how to manage stress and anxiety in our lives, which certainly makes sense in this era of hot, hot geopolitics and truly terrifying social media. All right, well, enjoy. Oh, and wait, you're gonna this this theme song. We're just we're real happy about this theme song because I think it's the best thing we've ever done. <laughs> he and I sat in the studio last week, I guess, because this is the second Alien and the Robot episode that you're about to hear. Um, and we sat in the studio and made this and laughed the whole time. So enjoy the second episode of. The Alien and the Robot. 
In the year 2013, an extraterrestrial and an android encountered each other in a human village. Since that time, they've worked together to understand the strange, fascinating primates that dominate the Earth. Today's episode, Earth. That's a, that's a perfect yes, thing can. to go on the liturgist conversations is still setting levels. Yeah. That's how you know it's not staged, although we could have staged that. Damn Ooh. it. Ooh. We're not that talented, guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're not that well If you can out. hear the air conditioner, it's real hot in Los Angeles today. So hot. Not humid Mike and hot. I had a, a lunch the other day where <laughs> most people would have found it a depressing lunch. I enjoyed it. Tell us more. I mean, he just really went into into the depths on how bad climate change oh. is at this point. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's real. Mm. It's real bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like to the point I struggle, like, should we even care about justice anymore? Mm. We're, we're like potentially as many as 10, as few as two generations from the end of human civilization. <laughs> yeah. See, I was the only one that laughed. Maybe double that in the end of the species. I'm sorry, no. Sometimes, go ahead. You, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, sometimes I actually wonder if uh, uh, Republicans believe that too. So they're just like, we're just going to get what's ours right now because we we kind of know what's going on. They don't want to acknowledge it though. I think a lot of people, business-wise, are uh-huh. doing that right now. Corporations uh-huh. are. I got mine. Yep. I'm Enjoy getting- it while I can. Yep. Yep. Can you um, re- Resay what you said when I asked if you were elected president, or you just were given the emperor of America or whatever. <laughs> what is, what are the policies that you ena- enact? Take all the defense spending, all of it, hmm. and channel it into um, research. Uh, and that government-funded research would primarily focus on one fusion power. And two, the production and scaling of atmospheric carbon scrubbers. Um, and a lot of people would say, but wait, what about education and healthcare? And all those things, believe me, are super important to me. They're just not important if we all die. So that'd be my top order. Then after that, I'd restructure the remaining money <laughs> in a democratic socialist framework that focused on the things that people tend to campaign on. But my point is, I'm I'm getting to the point where anthropomorphic climate change is not an important issue. It is the defining issue. And I'm very worried, maybe us in our older years, but definitely our children and our children's children, are going to look back even on climate advocates today and say, you weren't doing anything and you knew how bad it was going to get because the signs started. When we're creating cat- a new category for hurricanes it's called Category 6, because Category four, 5 isn't enough of a statistical outlier anymore, when every year is record wildfire, wildfires, when the hottest year on record was an El Nino year, which is something we anticipate, but when the next year isn't an El Nino year and it's the second hottest year we have in recorded history, that's when you see climate scientists for the first time saying, 
I'm not concerned anymore what happens to my great-grandchildren or my grandchildren. I'm realizing I'm going to have to wrestle with the effects and impacts of severe climate change in my lifetime starting now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one person said we're no longer looking at warning signs. We're looking at what is. But don't make the mistake of calling these summers the new normal. These are the base of the mountain, not a new plateau. Whew. Praise the name. <laughs> just, just taking a praise break, guys. <laughs> I, I certainly put myself in this category, but I know there's lots of people who are thinking about whether they have kids or not because of, you know, is are you bringing a life into a world that that actually is just going to guarantee more suffering? I, I struggle with that though mm-hmm. because I, I mean, when is life not? suffering like i mean if you live right. during the, the age of the black plagues i mean like yeah i think you just you just have kids and hope for the best speaking as the guy that doesn't have kids mm-hmm. <laughs> has no intention <laughs> of having kids anytime soon but i bet i bet more and more people will start thinking like that yeah. as we see climate refugees starting to be a thing yeah. and and economies collapsing and all yeah. that there's uh, a, i mean there's a fair argument to be made that uh the syrian refugee crisis came because of an unseasonal drought that probably had to do with climate change so climate mm. refugees are a thing now wow. i mean that wow. see how that destabilized europe how that completely destabilized europe yeah that i mean i think you're right that is the base of the mountain We're more see, to come more we will see mm. more to come it was uh recently there was a fire here in northern california in redding where i used to live and it's still going right yeah it's still going uh it's moved up closer to shasta so it's left the city of redding which is probably one of the biggest towns closest to the oregon border in at the top of california anyway the, fi- the there were walls of fire upwards of a hundred feet, and then there were fire tornadoes. <laughs> Seriously, wow. you can watch, you can see it's called the car fire, but um and and about a third or half the town had to be evacuated, and so it, just here in California there was tens of thousands of wildfire refugees. I mean, people that I knew, uh, I know people that lost their homes, people who every maybe every home on their block got lost, but theirs was okay and. They all like went to Sacramento for like a week, you know, and they were all like refugees. So here, here, fleeing wildfires. Here's my concern. We have talked about some of the heaviest, weightiest, most significant issues out there on the Liturgist podcast. And what encourages me, stepped on a dog. What encourages me <laughs> is uh, how much when we do a podcast, despite any controversy that comes up, People shift on issues and people take mm. action. That's mm. that's like my pride in the show and the wow. way it's produced and the way it's structured. But when we did an episode on climate change, which was incredibly well downloaded, and we cr- had a call to action that was very clear and nonpartisan that should have engaged people universally, very easy. So I expected huge participation and response. And we did have a huge response in downloads. Seven figures of people downloaded the Pale Blue Dot episode. But in terms of people who actually went to the landing page, it was less than 500. Wow. And of the people who actually went to the landing page, less than 100 people used the tool to look up how to call their congressperson and ask them to join the Climate Solutions Caucus. Yep. So when compared to every other episode we've ever done, and we did everything you're supposed to do, we painted an optimistic picture. We told stories. We did everything we've done in this program to drive action effectively. When we did that about climate change, 
the result was dramatically different than anything we've ever done in the deafening lack of response. Like people are more shut down talking about climate change than they are white supremacy or patriarchy. Like those are really deeply rooted, difficult topics that often seem paralyzing and hopeless, but apparently by the data, not as paralyzing and as hopeless as a warming globe. Hmm. And that caucus, the one that we were supporting, it just got reported uh, yesterday that uh, the climate caucus is at risk of losing its bipartisan support because all the Republicans that are on it are either uh, retiring or they're probably going to lose their seats to Democrats. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. Think, there you go. Progress just did the end on that. I saw it yesterday. Just put it a nice little bow on it. We're doomed. <laughs> and I think the thing you were saying about the defense budget is interesting because we have all these defense trillions of dollars of world spending in defense budgets against other human beings in case they get attacked. It would be as if we had trillions of dollars of alien defense against UFOs in the middle of World War II. Or mm. <laughs> like, mm. guys, the Earth is, uh, is going to warm to the point where human civilization ends. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it. There's theoretical, you know, maybe Russia might invade someday. But uh, we know the climate's mm. going to end human civilization if we don't do something. So what's but the... a lot of people don't. Yeah. And especially the people that support defense spending deny the notion that the climate is changing or if it's changing that it's related to human activity. So there's some not knowing and then there's some denial. Willful, yeah, ignorance. What else does that play intrapsychically, sociopolitically that stops us from doing something or getting engaged? I mean, I think hopelessness. It's almost like we need hope. So hopelessness. Feels too big of a problem. Yeah. I, it's just, it feels too too vague and it's like people already have a hard yeah. time grabbing a hold of something if they can't figure out how it impacts them like mm-hmm. really even though we can say this will impact lands and territories but it still feels we just don't think planetary mm-hmm. we don't have like a, plan- a planetary mind if that makes sense to grapple with what hurts you hurts me actually and how all those things are interconnected so if the global south is experiencing you know uh, major problems due to climate change or, or the the poor of the earth are we don't understand how that will affect our economy or in how it will affect our way of life and, and way of being. So I, I just don't think, I think we just take everything for convenience versus mm-hmm. actually interrogating how our world actually works mm-hmm. and how people, how we're all interconnected in that way. And the globe is interconnected. So yeah, planetary issues. It's like, uh, uh too big. <laughs> I, w- I would normally say that if a problem feels like it's too big, then people might avoid participating. It's kind of like we, there's this, thing that people do to run marathons and we call the the psychological technique chunking so you say to the next mile marker mm-hmm. not the next 10 because mm-hmm. 10 is too big but you did the episode and you gave people a small enough chunk you gave them a small mile marker and nothing so there's more going on here than just it's too big it, it's too big and there's a billion dollar machine mm-hmm. that is waging an information type of warfare over the hearts and minds of whole nations. So there's money keeping this conversation one-sided or keeping people feeling apathetic or hopeless to this. Corporations are spending that money in order to downplay the effects of climate change while they secretly understand it, you know, it's going on. And so I think we also too, in our media era, like we don't understand how 
you might hear a ray of sunshine like that podcast, which is like this there, this is the problem. Here's da da da. But then you go back into the real world mm. where you're being bombarded with messaging information that says it doesn't matter. It's not that important. Your whole communities of people that don't think it's important. And also when we talk about climate change, I think ultimately we're talking about a whole other type of dawn of human industry because renewable energy is going to completely revolutionize the whole globe or has the capacity to revolutionize the whole globe. But that will completely change all the power dynamics. It will change where all the money flows. And so there is billions, if not trillions of dollars invested in keeping the status quo the status quo because solar, wind, hydro, energy will completely revolutionize the whole planet. And they know it. You said, Mike, the other day that if we, st- if we stopped all carbon emission, if we, st- if we stopped it all today, we'd still be in for a significant rough- warming ahead yeah, of us. Yes, absolutely. Right. And I think that's like the hopelessness I think, and that I feel for me, like I do what I can. No, I could do more. I know I could do more. But for me, honestly, it feels like taking my towel into the ocean and really just trying to stay dry, just really <laughs> wiping my legs off furiously. That's a good image. <laughs> it's like, this is coming. This is happening. I, that's why I wonder if less, fewer people called their congressmen because they're like, the Congress people don't give a shit. Hmm. And if they did, what are they going to do? It's It just feels hopeless. Mm. It's going to take such drastic, like, I would vote yes, raise my taxes 20% for all fusion and carbon scrubbing research. I would vote yes on that and gladly pay 20, 30, whatever, more taxes. But when it comes down to, like, call your congressperson, turn off a light, it's good. We should, and I should more. But I'm just saying, in the little things, like you were saying, the, you give people little chunks to do. It's like, yeah, I could dry my ankle off here while I'm standing in this tsunami. But I think we live in a we live in a scarcity of heart and mind. Like we don't understand that problems can be fixed, even problems that feel unfixable can be fixed. Like I feel like that has to be the motivating factor internally: the apathy, the people just not actually believing in abundance, believing that we can actually fix the problems that are right in front of us. And maybe it's because of past trauma and and experiences with that, but just simply living as if that's too big or that's impossible. I don't know. I feel like we just, as a culture, as we just lack moral clarity, we lack imagination. We lack, I don't know, maybe it's just the belief that we can, we can do it. I mean, if you believe the moon landing is real, which I do, (laughs) if we could go to the moon, we can clean the oceans. (laughs) Like that's not, you know, and so, yeah, the effects, we're going to feel effects, but they can be mitigated. They can be. Sure. Yeah. I don't know what that is outside of just a pure lack of a moral, moral imagination inside of us as a culture. Thinking back to our conversation in the in the man episode, I was talking about Terry Cooper's arithmicity, the pathological arithmicity. Yes, nice. that was well done. <laughs> Six tries the first time. That is a hard thing to say. For me. Arithmicity. Arithmicity, yeah. I won't even try. But this idea that we are disconnected from cycles of the earth, and that's a function of both colonization and patriarchy, that there has been this disconnection from imminence, as Simone de Beauvoir puts it, imminence being the kind of earthiness and the rawness of life and versus transcendence, the intellectual, the, the bigger than, and those parallels that that conversation parallels to how we think about the divine as well. But 
it seems like maybe we've lost something even in our understanding of what matters in life yeah. in in the way we think about things. Mike, you and I were having a conversation in Vancouver about the First Nations people and and about land being the primary currency of value as opposed to money. It seems like it might not even be on our radar sometimes to think about earth as something that sustains mm -hmm. us. We think about mind or machine or economy. Mm -hmm. There's some really interesting movements like the eco-feminism movement, which look at veganism and real commitment to doing something about climate change as a central component of feminism because of the way that colonization and patriarchy have created this disconnection with self and the earth and other. There's a really good book called Staying Alive, for those of you who are interested. I feel like that notion hits on something essential that gets ignored in this conversation. People talk about positioning the economy versus the environment or the economy versus the ecosystem. Mm. But human economies are something that happens within the ecosystem. They are in no way separate from it. Mm. And they are completely, 100% subordinate to it yeah. already. The There's a, a documentary on fusion I watched recently on an airplane. And it opens up with uh, someone who works at ITER, which is the international project to build a, a fusion reactor. And he was uh, talking about yeast and how when you put yeast in dough, they will consume all the sugars available and reproduce as quickly as they possibly can. And not until the sugar runs out, until their own waste byproducts kill them, even when there's sugar remaining in the dough. That's how we make bread. And his thing was that you couldn't see any difference in the behavior of yeast in dough and homo sapiens in ecosystems. That's where migration and colonization arose from is the way that rarely, if ever, over time, does this species find an equilibrium with its environment. And so his question is like, and an open question for him was, are we a sustainable species was the structure of our brains a positive move in evolution or are our brains something that right now are being actively selected against based on the way that we change the environment? Hmm. And the only hope for us being a timely lasting part of the global ecology is to embody and execute these notions we find in movements like ecofeminism to erase this pretend false division between economic activity and the core ecology that supports it mm. and contains it. So mm -hmm. good. Do you guys remember, speaking on a political level, but do you remember uh, during the 2016 election when the WikiLeaks dumps were happening and there was a transcript that got released of Hillary Clinton talking to some investment bankers about open borders? You remember that? And that clip, that transcript got used on the left and the right to like bash her where she was talking about the like she was like my dream is like hemispheric open borders like eventually kind of thing and she and she said all that in the context to renewable energy she was talking about how this power was going to revolutionize the globe create economic like dignity for everyone it was going to change economies and it would create some free market trade stuff that got used as some like 
See, she wants criminals and the, the MS-16 gang, you know, gangs to come. And the way that the, the open borders thing, they still, Trump on Twitter to this day still brings up Democrats want op- open borders. That whole notion was purely from Hillary Clinton talking about that. I say that to say everything you're saying about just the, the evolutionary question of like of where we're at. And there's so many people that have a hard time hearing that because of the messaging and the information and the billions of dollars that are being spent to like create this alternative narrative to the truth of our place in the global e- ecology. And I, I think it don't, doesn't change until we reverse that narrative. I'm not saying we can outspend it, but I do think on a local, like practical level, we can start to have conversations like this that begin to talk about the dream of renewable energy and the dream of how that's going to affect global markets and economies in, in a positive way and start talking about nur- how nourishing and caring for the earth is actually profitable <laughs> For the human race, like we actually will profit more and actually lift more people out of poverty by embracing these types of ideas. But they're just truths um, Mm. about how we relate to our environment and seeing ourselves holistically in that way. You don't have to pick between doing the right thing and also being like profitable. Mm. I feel like we've made Mm. that. That's part of the disinformation is that's a distinction. Like, no, we can actually all flourish and economically by taking care of our ecology. Well, you brought up something that a few times you used the word truth. Yeah. That feels central to this for me. What, like, what's true? Do we get to decide? Are we post-truth? Mm. Uh, what's real? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to separate, separate the things that we hear and the spin from mm-hmm. what's really happening. The, some of the things that I do feel like are real and are true. And in spite of all sorts of different constructivist arguments I could make, I think about there being something important about naming the truth and the validity of the mm-hmm. climate change problem. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm just stuck on that word true. Cause I wonder if there's, because people value truth differently now than yeah. perhaps they did. It's my favorite definition of truth came from Walter Brueggemann and Walter Brueggemann defines truth as a cluster of relationships, cluster of dignity, security, well-being, and respect that that is actually from from the biblical perspective, but as well as from a, maybe an ultimate reality perspective, like that is truth. So when I say truth and talking about this or the truth of our ecology, the truth of climate change, the truth to me, it's it's the truth of the land. Like it's the truth of the evidence of like what we're seeing in front of us, and also how we haven't been given dignity, respect, well-being, security to the land, also to each other. And like you said earlier about patriarchy, um, white supremacy, colonialism being the forces that distorted truth distorted those cluster of relationships of security, well-meaning, mm. dignity, and respect, and created economic structures that that raped and pillaged and plundered the planet. Mm. I think we have to restore those notions of truth. We have to take meaning into our own hands and, def- and define that as truth and say, this is truth. This is what this is. This is how the land has been, da, 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 and here's what we can do to, to heal it. Here's what we can do to create that respect with our environment because that, that trust has been broken, mm. and I do believe the planet's a living thing. Oh, I like that phrase. Our trust, our trust in our relationship with the planet has been broken. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's William Matthews, and I'm really excited to tell you that I am going on tour September 6th 
through the 20th, I'm doing a West Coast tour. I'll be hitting Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Reading, Eugene, Oregon, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, BC. I'm going to hang out with Hillary. She's coming to the show. So make sure you grab tickets. You can go to my website, williammatthewsmusic.com. And uh, yeah, come out and support. It's going to be a night of music, conversation. We're going to talk about justice, cosmology, maybe do a little liturgy. So we'd love to see all of you. What about the alarmist issue? I know one thing that we focused on was not being too alarmist with the first episode with the Pale Blue Dot episode. We we did that intentionally trying to put people's minds in the place where they would move to action and not just panic and inaction. But at some point, when do you, you know, like if, if the tsunami is coming, it's rolling in, like not to alarm everybody. Let's just stay calm here. But... Start packing up your belongings. Let's let's make some action towards the exit. And then 10 minutes later, they're all just still sitting there. All right. Now, everybody, I don't know if you heard me 10 minutes ago. <laughs> like, how do you... I get the imperative to stay calm, but we're getting to the place. I think we're going to need the geniuses, the human geniuses of society to make this their project. This is like, yes, we all can play a part and do our, our thing, but we're going to need some political geniuses. Our next Al- Einsteins and all those are going to need to invent climate stuff. <laughs> our finest minds are going to have to go into fusion and, and, and start thinking about these systemically. We're going to need our next Steve Jobs to not just be about capitalism, but to save the human race. So on that level, getting the word out about how urgent this is for the people that are working in fields that maybe they are working in, in things right now that could be shifted if they understood the gravity mm. of what's going on. So wait, are you saying we it's a, it's appropriate to be alarmist? I'm just I'm, I'm bringing it up as mm. maybe maybe some alarmist mm. panic is warranted. So I've been working with climate activists who've been doing this far longer than I've been, like people ten plus years, twenty years, and they find being an alarmist like people shut down on that too, mm. like they. They don't they feel like it's a conspiracy theory or they feel like it's just this like fear that's being blown up. It's probably not as bad as they're saying it. Like and so when they do raise the alarm and they do like I mean, Al Gore did it, <laughs> you know, like how I many like we've seen like major political leaders do it, you know, make it like in this country, uh, make it a priority. I think people have a general understanding of climate change now pro- than they did 10 years ago, but they they're still not mobilized or willing to mobilize. You say no, Mike? No, I'm saying the tsunami example was a great one because raising an alarm about actual tsunamis doesn't work. So <laughs> yeah. when 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 a, before a tsunami happens, often the ocean recedes in an incredible yeah, and dramatic yeah. way, and we have footage of people getting shells running out into the ocean to grab shells with people saying, "This is a tsunami." <laughs> And they go, what are you talking about? Do you see those shells? And you see people sitting there with iPhones filming, and the water starts coming back. And what do they do? They stand there and film all the way until the water reaches them, at which point you see the video drop and they start running. So, like, we are (laughs) primates, and we act like primates. The Enlightenment was wrong. We are... In no way rational. We never, ever, 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 ever behave rationally. We literally operate on impulses and emotions 
And then our rational hardware justifies that with fancy language. And that's all we do. Everybody, me, I, I accept no one. There's no one I'm more distrustful of than someone who tells me that they're objective and unemotional. Because I'm like, oh, you are super self-deceived. And I get you. I used to be too. <laughs> but like, that's why alarmism doesn't work. Alarmism neurologically shuts us down. We can't accept. Why do you think we have religious mythologies? We can't stand the idea of thinking we could die. So yeah. when you raise any issue that's truly existential, people will create narratives, be they religious, be they cultural, whatever, that release the need to grapple with mortality of the individual and the individual's offspring. And it's not just yeast that generally fails to find equilibrium with environment. All life, if ecosystem variables change, will reproduce to a point where its own population crashes. It makes a lot of sense if you started out as a little ball of protein in a hostile earth to consume as many resources as possible and reproduce as fast as possible and let the chips fall where they may. There's been one organism <laughs> with the capacity to impact the atmosphere as much as we have. The other organism was trees and algae. When algae learned to bloom and trees grew pervasively, those were the first organisms that could engineer the entire atmosphere. It just so happens we're better at it and we're decimating both of those populations, even though their atmospheric engineering is what allowed us to evolve in the first place and what allows us to continue being alive. So what I was getting at with the alarmist thing, I, I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to convince 7 billion people standing on the beach looking at the seashells to not be on the beach. Mm. But if I can convince a police officer to forcibly remove all those people from the beach, somebody that actually believes mm. and actually can do something about it, that, that actually can make people leave the beach. So, you know, like... We need a shepherd for the sheep. <laughs> we need technology. We need climate messiah. Climate messiah. Climate messiah. We, yeah. We need somebody. We need a voting generation that's going to realize that the defense budget is absurd compared to what we're talking about. Like, yeah. do they need to know that internally? And how, who's going to communicate that? Who are the, who are the Beyonce's of the world? Who are the people that all, that a generation is going to look to? They need to believe it. So some, on some level, I'm, also think about, okay, people aren't going to believe this. As a species, we're not going to believe this. Is anybody out there going to believe this? Hmm. Yeah. I do believe it. I have approached it as a chunking problem in my own life. I've dramatically diminished, not enough, but dramatically diminished my carbon footprint. And if other people in my life circumstances were doing that, we'd be making meaningful progress even without government action. Yeah. So the trick here is the problem is not caused by a few actors. The problem is literally caused basically by most economic activity in the developed world. Any Western nation per capita is among the highest carbon polluters on the globe, even those that are taking progressivist policy stances on climate change. So, and the other thing is like if, it's, if the thing is like, well, we need, we need a police officer to get people off the beach – like, that's the road to leftist authoritarianism. Like, because bo both the right and the left have their 
tendency towards authoritarianism. And what I've noticed right now is this rise of authoritarianism on the right in the Trump era. And then there has been kind of like an echo authoritarian leaning on, in some portions of the left as well, which I'm not necessarily completely opposed to authoritarianism, except that I don't trust people enough to be authoritarians and take that responsibility well. I just haven't seen it happen in the arc of human civilization. I, I don't even think in America, though, we need authoritarianism. We just need we just have a segment of the population. Was it close to 40 to 50 percent? that just don't vote. When you poll, like, how many, you know, Americans believe in Medicare for all, it's it's like 60% of Americans believe in Medicare for all, yet we can't even get p- past legislation, you know, like about that. The, the need for authoritarianism, to me, comes from the lack of democratic participation that's happening. Because if people were actually engaged and, and voted and put people in office with their value system, I think democracy would work and we would actually be able to pass meaningful legislation and pass a lot of legislation right now we're so stalled and i think we've come very apathetic to that in the last few years pretty much since obama took office uh, maybe four years into that we the government began to like here in this country begin to like it's stalled we can't pass real significant meaningful legislation anymore and we haven't been able to now for what six years I think that the authoritarian thing is just the the angst and the frustration around a process that's broken and is slow moving mm-hmm. and is halted. And if we can get those people, if we can encourage enough people, like you're saying, Michael, the non-voters, particularly that 40, 50 percent who are like just peace, like checked out of the process for whatever reason, if we can actually communicate a message to them versus trying to change Republicans' minds or these, we can communicate to those people why this is important and an agenda and a plan economically, but as well as for the environment, for human dignity and security, well-being and respect, truth, then I think we actually can get democracy moving again and we can actually begin to, I don't know, take those meaningful steps. I don't need a Trump on the, on the right or a, I don't think Bernie is this way, but like, I don't need a Bernie on the, on the left. left. Well, yeah, I don't need Trump on the right or a Bernie on the left, though I don't think Bernie is authoritarian on any level, but <laughs> compared to Trump. But in terms of the way people do look at Bernie, they kind of want him to be that authoritarian for the left, like value system. And it's like, we don't need that. We just need us to show up and vote. Well, let's go back to alarmism. Do we need urgency? Is urgency different than alarmism? Urgency is better. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for alarmist authoritarianism. (laughs) I didn't. And I didn't think. No, I'm not. Um, I'm just saying, do we turn up the volume of I I've heard from those advocates as well of people say when you when you stay too much too fast people just shut it down, and I get that but it's also not working the current strategy is mm-hmm. not working and by I don't think by police officers getting people off the beach I don't think the only way to get people off the beach is to put a gun in their face I think if the people that help us imagine what's most true what's most beautiful what's most important in our society the filmmakers the authors the podcasters, the teachers, the parents, the everybody that's forming imaginations. And that's probably a generation or two down the line. I don't see how just this is only going to be grassroots. People just, uh, yeah, everybody kind of shuts more lights off and eats a less, one less cheeseburger a month. And that's how we fix climate change. Um, I think it's going to need more drastic. Yeah, it's going to need both for sure. Yeah. As you're talking, I keep thinking about motivation, like what we're trying to do, I think, with climate change strategies and advocacy is to motivate people away from something. But really, the most effective way of motivating people is towards something. 
But when you're motivating people towards something and the thing that you're motivating people towards is a less bad existence, it's not going to give you the same kind of dopamine hit Mm -hmm. as if you're motivated towards a lottery win and you get this huge payout at the end. Like the payout of us doing a ton is less bad existence. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, how do we even envision the prize at the end that we're working towards when we don't even know what that would look like and it doesn't even seem better than now? It would just be less bad than it could be in the future. It's Mm. so, it's so intangible. It's so abstract and might not actually experientially translate to the sense of like, this was meaningful for me because it is so hypothetical at this point. So I wonder if we need to to find a way to motivate people towards, not away from something, but towards something that feels like it has a payoff that can actually be enjoyed and experienced. I mean, I I don't know how to do that. What are you going to say? What lit me on fire about climate change was I started watching Vice when it came out on HBO, the original show, like five, six years ago. And they did a lot of climate features. So they took you to, you know, Greenland and, and the, the Arctic or whatever. So I felt like I got a visual of on the ground how fast the ice was melting, what was happening, you know, and, and subsequent stories they did. But what sealed the deal for me was when I went to Paris for the climate uh, agreement, the summit that happened there, the COP21. And was, there's like the science fair outside of the actual like private delegation meetings where scientists were creating visuals around what will the world look like on renewable energy or whole cities Mm. that were fueled by renewable energy, transportation, education, parks. You still have city, but it's also connected to the environment and nature. Everyone. I mean, you would sit there. They had like these things where like you sit at a table and then like there would be bike pedals and you would charge your phone by like pedaling, like sitting and pedaling a bike. Like, Mm. you know, there was all these really visuals. So for me, I felt like I saw a, clear picture of the world we could live in like just in a weird like microcosm like this is very small and like kind of weird and goofy science fair but to me i feel like we need artists and we need scientists and political people to create visions and like a new moral imagination for hey what kind of world do we want to look like in 100 years what if los angeles was a green city powered by like solar and i mean it's so hot here (laughs) You know, like it's it's wild. I think that we don't have that vision, like that we can't create it. Because I think we easily can. To me, that's what Hillary Clinton was actually saying in that thing was like, "Hey, this is the dream." So maybe I think we just need to create art to give people the prize, like you said, at the end of like, "Hey, you experience some temporary suffering now. Maybe you get higher taxes a little bit, or maybe you get this. But hey, at the end, this is what we do. We completely lift whole like regions out of poverty." And we give them dignity and we give them access to resource and to because energy, I think maybe energy is going to be the new commodity that could be in 100 years. What if people are trading, you know, free trading energy with each other, like the way we do information? That feels like a wild, crazy thought. But like, imagine if you live, you know, in the outback in Australia, right, or you live in Kenya and you have the capacity to to store energy. Are you doing anything, Mike? You're you're kind of a survival guy, though. <laughs> you mean not in but like self prez survival? No, guy? I mean oh, like okay. storing water jugs. Oh, yeah. right, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't come for my water. Yeah, don't give out his address now. <laughs> but are you doing anything 
to like prepare your kids? Do they need to know more survival shit than we did? Do they need to know how to grow their own food? There's this whole survivalist movement online, which is like about the collapse of civilization and surviving it that has a real strong race component. And they not only, they're they're called preppers a lot of times, uh, and they not only learn survival skills and store food and water, they get a lot of guns and knives. I'm not that kind of prepper. I'm the kind of prepper who is prepared for a statistically likely natural disaster and potentially as long as four weeks wherein government services are interrupted. And the reason I'm a prepper is so that I'm not a burden on an overburdened system so that people of less socioeconomic privilege don't miss their chance at the water on the truck because I'm thirsty. So that's why I prep and prep the way I do. I really, literally just follow the minimum guidelines as set out uh, by the federal government for survival and preparation. I don't have collapse of civilization contingency plans other than trying to ensure that I'm as close to the beginning of any great die-off as possible. (laughs) If it looks like everything's going down, if it's nukes, I want a front row seat. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I just, I'm not, I'm not about clawing out of the ashes and just doing anything to get species alive. I'm voluntarily sterile at this point. I can't help with repopulation efforts. I'm just a burden on everyone if it gets to that. In terms of my children, we do talk about climate and sustainable living, but I'm more interested in trying to prepare my children for social cooperation than a rugged individualist survivalism. Mm. So we talk about the aggregate of small actions in our own lives. We talk about gallons of water saved just in our household if we all take fewer showers. We talk about specifically how much less electricity we use by setting the thermostat at 78 instead of 72, and we all just wear looser clothing or or cooler clothing around the home. So I'm trying to prepare them more for civic participation than the end of all things. (laughs) And if it gets to that, the human animal is a pretty amazing thing. I just don't want to see what humanity looks like where you're at the point that without question, the most violent mammal in evolutionary history is universally strapped for resources. E not a good world to be in nope and there are seven or eight billion of them at that time yeah Yeah, or or say no that we're two billion down so there's that much angst and fear oh man that's not a homo sapien i want to encounter (laughs) i want the domesticated tamed well-fed homo sapien and which is why the way i want to structure society is to make sure every human on the planet is properly domesticated yeah crazy to me how we talk about like cutting social security and medicare and like all this stuff and how you know a lot of republicans want to do that and cut the social safety net because i'm going you don't want to see a world where people are going hungry because if they do they're coming after you like they're gonna and you know if you're wealthy in mexico like you have to walk around with security like because the wealth inequality is so massive and so it's crazy to me that we even have conversations where we talk about cutting social (laughs) benefits 
It's 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 literally wild because an undomesticated human, like you said, is like you think we have a crime problem now, nah. right? You think a hungry tiger is bad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a break, hungry people. <laughs> yeah. There's a real chance someone could interpret that and contextualize it. And I'm not saying that like marginalized people are vicious. No, I'm saying all people, all people. if in a sustained state of need measurably changes the way our bodies and brains function. Yep. If you can't get access to enough glucose or enough carbohydrates to create glucose for more than 16 hours, as little as eight, if your glycogen stores go down, the way your brain metabolizes energy changes in a way that affects your cognition and increases feelings of hopelessness and Mm -hmm. aggression. Yep. Six to eight hours. And then draw that out a little bit, and you've got homicidality, Mm -hmm. psychotic symptoms, people cutting their hands off. Anyone who's curious, read about the Minnesota Mm -hmm. starvation experiment. Wow. Like, what do you think is happening in Chicago when you have cities that have been economically divested from, and people have been left to fend for themselves with no food, very little access to clean water, and then people want to talk shit about gang violence in Chicago when you're like, no, this is a human rights violation going on. People whose suburban houses are built with wealth that came from those people's bodies who were kidnapped and brought here in the first goddamn place are the ones complaining about black and black crime yeah. when they're creating the socioeconomic and biological and metabolic circumstances yep. in which that exists mm. and ignoring the system that brought it there. Yep. It drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, if someone says black on black crime... You know you get a goddamn from me within 45 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) The amygdala just goes zoom. It even affected your recording technique. I was like, Mike, you're bounding on the table. I'm sorry. I I, I genuinely get angry, which, by the way, I'll say this since this is a delicious conversation. I have the good fortune of when I get a Lyft driver, I'm extremely likely to have a black evangelical Republican Lyft driver. I've had like seven in the last year. And it's really fun when they start a conversation, they hear I'm, oh, you're an author. What do you write about? Spirituality. Oh, Christian things? Yeah, Christian things. And then they think I'm an evangelical. And so they talk in ways they think that'll be fine for our mutual evangelicalism. And then I just can't stand it. (laughs) And three times I found myself in this weird, inverted racial justice conversation Mm -hmm. with a black person. (laughs) Where, like, they would say something like, uh, well, people just got to work harder and take accountability for their actions. And I'm like, what about the systemic discrimination against people of color and the wealth that was built through slave labor in this country? And what guy said to me, I think that's wildly overstated. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do right now. I'm real off my map. Yeah, that internalized. Op- How do you think I feel when I talk to those black people? We, I literally look at them like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nah, bro. You wrong. Nah, dude. That's What are you talking about? Shut up. Shut up. Wow. 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 And it, without question, when I get to that point, the person is former military, by the way. Mm. Oh, oh, oh like yeah. A huge mm. institutional oh, yeah. indoctrination. You're charting this. Doing a linear regression and give them a psych assessment, a political (laughs) scoring assessment. My conversation with Jamal. (laughs) Here's an area, too, where I think we can grow in. Maybe this will help. Religion. 
if anybody has the capacity to shift hearts and minds on this, it yeah. has to be the church. It has yeah, yeah. to be religious institutions. Here's why. Because I think there's a narrative inside of that book about God redeeming all things. Redeeming you talking about purpose driven life? <laughs> <laughs> you got me on that one. That was, that's good. <laughs> I meant the Bible. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is same, pretty same. much that's right? that's, evangel- right. that's the evangelical Bible right there. Two. You're right. Yeah, yeah part two. <laughs> the, the the revelation continues. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there's stories in in the text that talk about a God who redeems all things, that redeems history, that redeems land, that redeems uh, you know prophetic promise for whole people groups. You also have this whole end of the book that describes a new Jerusalem that talks about you know the an apocalyptic story that really gives some type of hope for a equitable, peaceable society. I think we see that in the text. So I kind of wonder where did the Christian imagination go wrong, where it forgot that its own texts and the prophetic promises from old and new Testament, like you see in Isaiah, it talks about rebuilding ancient cities and former foundations that, that God was going to create bloom in the desert. Like there's this whole thing where it's like, where there is despair, where there's wilderness that God wants to create oasis and that what is our job and our responsibility, you know, in that to care for people, but also care for the land and care for uh, revitalizing the land, rebuilding the land. And, and I see a lot of Christians today talk like that a little bit, but always in the, the capitalistic sense of like mm-hmm. kingdom building represents, you know, growing our ministry's economy, mm-hmm. you know, more than it does actually revitalizing areas and lands and cities like if the church took all their money and started investing economically into cities, if it ended poverty, like if we know for planting a fact, trees, planting and- trees, like we know for a fact, seven, it, they say it costs about seven billion to end poverty in America. Seven billion. What? The church in America gets that alone in tax breaks in one year. The amount of tax breaks the government gives to 501c3 churches has been tallied up closer, close to seven billion. Imagine if the church decided we're going to end poverty in America. Wow. We're going to adopt, you know, we, we're, we're pro-life, so we're going to adopt every, every mm. child that needs a home, has a home. And then we're going to revitalize the land. We're going to create urban gardens. We're going to allow, like, we're going to go to Chicago and actually help them create urban gardens and create food centers so they can grow their own food. They have no food there. Or we'll turn your church buildings into urban gardens. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You're used to this, all pay, of that. Yeah. And don't just adopt children, create the circumstances where families don't have to give up their children in the first place. Exactly. Yes. Well, if we step back from religion, if we step back from Christianity, spirituality, depends on the definition that you use, but is about the connection of all things. It's about mm-hmm. the weaving together of these threads that somehow got pulled apart, that are actually all part of the same fabric. And so thinking about spirituality, it has real life implications for climate, for how we treat the earth. For experiencing and seeing the connection between us and everything and everyone around us and how we actually need to be part of the same story. The threads need to come together to be part of the fabric for actually our spirituality to be healthy. There, there is Mm. praxis on the ground that relates to the earth. If our spirituality is healthy. And I don't think it is. (laughs) So we're just simply. Yeah. When you bring it to even like seminaries and theology and the philosophies that people within religious power structures and just social power structures are operating from, we need to start seeing the natural consequences of 
an inherent egocentric universe that the Bible was written out of, that we have this sort of feeling that all of this was for us. And that's, here, you go ahead and name the animals. And you go ahead and this, Earth is this, literally the center of the cosmos. And there's this flat disc in the middle of, and underneath us is the place of death and over us is God. And they all kind of, everything circles around me, the human ego. And mm. this is only 6,000 years old. And that's all the kind of, like this very human-centric universe um, where the earth is our plaything rather mm. than a view, a philosophy, a theology where we are the earth. We are mm. God's manifestation of creativity and love and shalom that have this tremendous power to create more shalom or to take it away, to yeah. create chaos. We need to update the cosmology. You do need to update the cosmology. That's exactly that, it. that we're coming from. And that, that all that stuff, that comes into those that are writing church songs and those that mm. are teaching in seminaries. And we have a lot of those people that listen to this show. Pay attention to your cosmology. Pay attention to your uh, eschatology, to the view of the end. What is this just some temporary stage that we're going to leave and go backstage into the big heavenly real place? And if that's the case, why would we love this place? Why would we take care of it? All that stuff has effect. It affects our theology. It makes it make more sense why church budgets are what yep. they are. And why curriculums are what they are at religious institutions, and what it all comes from these from these roots, and so there's some root work I think that that mm. we need to go back to some of our yeah. most fundamental assumptions about reality and earth and ourselves mm. and God that needs some some work. Which is kind of what you were trying to do when you kind of talked about the Genesis narrative <laughs> that ended up becoming a stupid viral article. Was you were doing that right, like? You were deconstructing yeah. those like ideas of uh, Adam and Eve and and what that represent. Which I have this weird thought experiment. Tell me if I'm totally off on this. But I thought recently about Adam and Eve, and let's just take the story literal for a moment. I wonder though if taking eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, if the sin of that was primarily not about just n disobeying God and doing something He told you not to do, but if the call was to name the, the garden, the creation, eating of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, to me would be like naming God's creation without God. Because if I name God's creation without God, then I'm going to distort it. Mm -hmm. Like if I call, you know, some, this wrong mm -hmm. and God's actually like, that's right. To me, that's how we get the transatlantic slave trade. Because I think Christians are taking on themselves to call something by like their authority, God's given us dominion. We're going to call that and say, this is right, this is wrong, and this is da-da-da-da, when actually they're doing it apart from relationship to the environment. They're doing it mm. apart from relationship with other people. So therefore, they're you know attacking LGBT people, and they're attacking like this and mm. saying, and raping and pillaging the land because they just think God has given it to them. When actually, I think it, the sin, so to speak, would be naming God's creation without relationship to God. And I define God probably as the the cosmic being that is within us of us of this planet and and more mm. cosmic Christ stuff. But well, so to get back to your your statement, Vishnu, I'm wondering, are you saying? And this this is just for me to clarify, um, although it might have some theological implications. But are you saying that that if we had a right theology, that it would lead us back to the earth? 
or that we need to change our theology so that it does that? I don't, I don't, I, I don't know about original Christian theology and how different it is. You know, what time period are you talking about? I assume that Jesus is and Paul's and Peter's, and I assume their view of reality was a lot different than most Christians today view of reality. But I know for my life, in my experience, when my theology changed, it very much impacted my feelings about the earth, my mm. feelings about myself, and, and how I create, and what I create, and what I spend my imagination dwelling on. When the world was a, a sinking boat that we had to get as many people off off the Titanic into the heavenly lifeboats, everything was different for me. When the theology changed to a more incarnated God within creation, that cosmic Christ stuff that William was talking about, I think that I just think that view, the fundamental view of reality gives rise to so much of how we operate, not just individually, but collectively. What we spend our money on, how we, what we create together, what we imagine to be the ultimate good. I think all that stuff springs from our deepest assumptions about reality. I wholeheartedly agree. makes me wonder about people who have a conversion experience towards a a thing that feels outside of them, that feels disconnected, where I think about your story and what I know about it, Vishnu, about connectivity and this path of spirituality towards oneness. I'd be curious to know if people who believed, who had a conversion experience, who had a spiritual experience to a thing or a someone that they felt was outside of them, where the fundamental framework is that I am distinct from it, if that within the root of the belief system is separation and distance. Yeah as opposed to connection and oneness. Yeah. My childhood self would laugh at myself now and make fun of me. I would literally see if some, if I saw some people cutting down a forest of trees, I would cry now. That would make me weep to watch that. And I would have laughed at myself as a kid. You're crying because trees are cutting down, a tree hugger or whatever. No, those. <laughs> I would also cry watching someone amputate my daughter's legs. Like that's part of us. That's part of our life. That is, that's us. That's me. That's, that's what's giving us life. These trees and we're cutting them down for just a temporary profit just to feel that, not to just think of it, but to feel the earth as me, to feel the earth as part of my own skin. I had a picture in my mind probably about two weeks ago. I was walking to work one morning I have a a mentor who's like a spiritual aunt or spiritual mother for me, and she's the granddaughter of a First Nations chief in Vancouver, and we meet regularly. And we'd been talking a little bit about connection with the earth as a piece of how I can sustain the healing work that I do and how actually the earth gives energy to me to support me to do the things that I do and and kind of stretch my arms out towards other people. And I I was walking to work and I had this picture in my mind of myself as a tree. And I had really deep roots and really tall branches. And I remember feeling this sense of responsibility with tall branches that there are many people who I work with who eat from the fruit of my branches. And for the branches to be healthy, my roots need to be deep and secure and to have enough space to stretch out to ground me. And the sense of pulling in 
and sending out at the same time took over and gave me a new understanding of myself, but it was through the image of a tree. And I remember after that, the tree and I were not so different from each other. Mm. And it changed my relationship to the tree, Mm. to trees, but to the tree because I and the tree were not different. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if to go back to the conversation we were having about motivation towards something and then to add in the piece that you're talking about, if we see ourselves in the earth, because of our egocentrism, if that will be the thing that helps us protect us to see ourselves as the earth, mm. to use our ego. Yeah, extend it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, extend our ego in a way that makes us do the self-protection survival stuff yeah. for the earth because we believe we are it in a new way. Mm. Yeah, you don't have to talk yourself into not cutting off your own hand. It's like I work with some people who do. But okay, they're a special case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> most of the time. But then, but then that's even that we say something has gone wrong. Yeah, and these people need to be supported. And yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. when it comes to the earth, we see dollar bills. Not oh, there's something wrong here. Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much lament that this is not a video, video. show right now. <laughs> you needed the facial expression with that heretic. I really want it. To feel it. <laughs> the sass William face. Oh, oh gosh, that's good. Priceless. That's really good. Good. I need to make a gif of it. I do. I want a gif. I want a gif of it, and I want to send it to people who ask for you for outrageous things. I have a fantasy. <laughs> nope. Uh, yeah, that look was, yeah. But I, that's but that's how people think and feel about this. Yeah. Like, you you say that. I, I'm like, yes, and my heart, my spirit, my everything is like, yes, amen, amen, yes. But I think five six, or seven years ago, I'd have been like, that's heresy. Mm. That is evil. That is Satan. <laughs> like, legitimately. Like, mm. And I think a lot of people, the reason why we can't have a religious conversation about oneness and about the idea of oneness and separation is because we have a whole, most of our monotheistic religions are built on like attaining God and trying to get to God versus realizing, I think on the mystical level, they're saying all those things, but like on the surface practical level, they're very much teaching people how to like sacrifice in order to be okay with God, <laughs> you know, like on some level. But even if we pull it back a level, if it's just symbolic, the symbolism of us being the earth has to mean something. Otherwise communion means nothing then too. Mm. I agree with you. Mm. The symbol of the body and the blood. Mm-hmm. We actually take that as if it's real. Some people more so than others. Yeah. And I think that's what's, you know, hypocritical inside of those religious institutions and the thought structure of that, right? Like, is we, we can, we're okay with symbolism here, but we're not okay with it over here. I think if you, if we can get to the root of that for people, that opens up a whole nother religious dialogue um, and a way of seeing yourself as a part of everything, which is good, I would say is good religion. Can you talk more about that, Hillary? What, what did you mean with communion and I'm still, yeah, let me work it out in my head as I'm talking. I think, I think the idea that we can't say that some things are meaningful symbols and are connected, but other things aren't like either the symbols mean something or they don't either. The symbols are actually a part of our spirituality and a path to us experiencing the divine or they're not. And so why, I guess I'm confused about why we would say that some symbols over here are okay but the other ones would be heretical. Mm-hmm. 
you're saying it's all at a metaphorical level. And so why do you care so much about one metaphor over the other? I think if, if the oneness argument is heretical for you, then take a step back and think of it from a symbolic perspective. Hmm. It's often lost in the post Rob Bell world. That heresy is a specific thing. Right. (laughs) A heresy is going against the teachings Mm -hmm. of the church. So the church prescribes a set of beliefs which are theologically right or correct as embodied through idea and traditional expression. And going against that is heresy. And heresy was used as a specific term to understand that sometimes the church can be wrong and sometimes, occasionally, heresy can be godly and lead to a necessary reformation. And it's supposed to be a distinct concept from blasphemy, mm. which is going against God's idea or truth or rejecting God. So mm. uh, in that contextual framework, that does provide a means by where something like oneness can be heretical but not blasphemous mm. or mm. both, mm-hmm. depending on the theological tradition. And I mm. only say that... Because so many people say we don't take theology seriously on the Liturgist podcast. That's good. I would also say, too, that uh, most modern expressions of Christianity to me are blasphemous. (laughs) (laughs) Like, seriously, like when you when you put it in that understanding of profaning God, when we when we kill the planet, that is a profaning God. Mm. When we lie and gossip on people and slander people, that's profaning the image of God in somebody else. Like, and we have whole structures that just allow that sort of stuff, you know, that don't connect that for people. And so, yeah, it's not even to me controversial to say that because to me it's so obvious, especially in in the context of what you just said. It's like, I agree. Yeah, you you are taking the saying "goddamn" isn't taking God's name in vain. You take God's name in vain when you don't love. Like mm. you whew, you take God's name in vain when you when you dismiss the poor. Like mm-hmm. we see that in the the story of the the Good Samaritan, like that is profaning God. Mm. I, I don't care. I don't care if you curse or not. Like, and I think somehow our priorities have gotten, for whatever reason, somewhere else. Because God, God damn, God damn, God damn. <laughs> One of my favorite Beyonce lyrics, too. Yeah. By the way, you <laughs> did that just for me.